Welcome to the Bunker Global, where we tell you what you need to know about news and politics from around the world. We've realised our listeners like a bit of routine, so this new show will be out every Friday, providing a roundup of global stories, picking apart key events, highlighting underreported information, and providing the context that news coverage often lacks. On this edition, Israel's assault on Jenin, French riots, Hong Kong bounty hunters, and more post-Brexit red tape. I'm Jacob Jarvis, and today I'm joined by Laura Makin-Isherwood, the former London Bureau Chief of Feature Story News, who also worked as a correspondent for the British Forces Broadcasting Service. Thank you for joining me, Laura. You're absolutely welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. We'll be discussing the latest from France shortly, but first up, I spoke with Anshel Pfeffer, a correspondent for Haaretz, based in Jerusalem, about the situation in Jenin. Israel launched an assault on Jenin earlier this week, resulting in multiple fatalities and widespread destruction. The conflict in the West Bank, and particularly individual events, can be hard to pick apart or make sense of. Here to help me get a better understanding of the situation is Anshul Pfeffer, a journalist for Haaretz and The Economist. Hello Anshul, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Anshul, firstly, can you describe Jenin to me as a place? So Jenin is the northernmost town or city in the West Bank. It's sort of isolated from the rest of the West Bank, which is one of the reasons why the population there are more independent and uh, do their own thing and, uh, and are less, less in tune with uh, the Palestinian Authority, which is based in Ramallah, quite a bit away to the south. And, and the place where the Israeli military operation took place for two days this week is what's called the refugee camp. Now, the refugee camp kind of conjures up an idea of tents or makeshift huts, but it's called the refugee camp because it was originally where Palestinian refugees arrived in the late 40s, early 50s, and many of their descendants are still living in that neighborhood. But today it's much more of a very crowded, built-up neighborhood of narrow winding alleys on a not very steep hillside. It's about half a square kilometer the size, around estimates of 15,000 people living there. And it's been the site this week and in, in, in previous, previous offenses of, uh, of some very pitched urban warfare. Was it a, a surprising target or a, a predictable target in that sense? No, I think both uh, on the Israeli and the Palestinian side, there was an expectation of some kind of uh, of operation like this. For the last year and a bit, there's been almost nightly Israeli raids there, basically ever since this group called the Jenin Brigades, which is a new organization, been in existence maybe for a couple of years, of local Palestinian militants who aren't really affiliated with any of the established Palestinian organizations ever since they more or less took over control of the of the refugee camp area, ousting the Palestinian Authority security forces from there. And from that place, various attacks against Israeli targets, both in the West Bank and within Israel, were, were carried out. There's been the expectation of something bigger, like what we saw this week uh, taking place. And and the Palestinian militants and the civilians in the in the area were surprised. They perhaps were surprised by the Israeli tactics. Yeah, but the attack itself was expected. You've called it a, a military operation. I've seen other places it be called you know, raids and assault and so forth. How would you 
in a more just simplistic way, describe it, describe exactly what kind of happened there. What happened was a brigade-sized force, which means close to a thousand soldiers, went in in the early hours of, of Monday morning. There was a drone strike on some some buildings in the camp, which uh, the Israeli army said were, were, were command posts. And during the drone strike, or under cover of that drone strike, the Israeli forces went in, in convoys of, uh, of uh, tactical, sort of bu- bulletproof vehicles, not tanks or armored personnel carriers, but more maneuverable, smaller vehicles. Some went in on foot. They went in from four different directions. And by the time people that the militants and the, and the civilians kind of managed to understand what was happening after the drone strikes, the, the Israeli soldiers were already in there. What was the, the scale of the, the fatalities and the, the damage there? So there were 12 Palestinians killed, and the Israeli army claims that they were all uh, militants. Some of the names, are uh, some of the, the identities are being contested by a person, mainly because at least three of, of the 12 were under 18, they were at the age of 16 or 17. So then you get into the question of whether a teenager who was affiliated with an armed organization is considered a, a, a combatant. But that was the number 12. One Israeli soldier was killed. There were a few dozen people wounded as well. What is the Israeli government's motivation here? What do they want from this, the reason for this escalation? And what will Netanyahu's reaction be to how this has played out? Well, we're talking about a new Israeli government, which has been in power just for six months. Obviously, Netanyahu is Israel's longest serving prime minister, but the coalition which provides the majority for this government is different to the previous coalitions he's had in which there has been some level of of sort of balance between centrists and right-wing parties. In this coalition, there are no centrist parties. There's only Likud, which is Israel's main right-wing parties, and is currently on a, on a far-right trajectory. So these parties also represent the settlers living in the West Bank who have been calling for a much wider, much more devastating military operation against the Palestinian cities because from their perspective, these are the places where people who are attacking their communities are coming from. And the pressure from the right, from the far right in Netanyahu's cabinet has certainly been a factor in bringing about an operation of this size. Because as I said before, until now for the last year or so, it was mainly small nightly raids. A small force of Israeli commanders would go in and carry out a couple of arrests Sometimes they would they would kill one of the ringleaders, but there was nothing of this scale. Actually, for, for for over twenty years, there's not been an Israeli military operation of this scale in the West Bank. And so you're based in Jerusalem. What does the atmosphere feel like there? There's the impression that people have of all Israel and all the West Bank being this cauldron of pressure and violence, constantly. And the fact is, is that in, as in many conflicts. Often the the violence, the battlefield is in, is in a relatively limited area, and you don't necessarily feel it in other parts of the country. And I don't think we felt here in Jerusalem that there was a that there was this pitched battle taking place in in Jenin, uh, an hour and a half drive away. What does it mean for people who live there now, in terms of people being displaced, looking forward? Is that a major issue now? Well. Once again, it, it, it kind of depends on how many people lost their homes. We've heard reports of, of dozens of homes being destroyed. 
some of those homes, according to the Israelis, were being used to store weapons or as workshops for for, for making uh, explosive devices. That certainly is something that's going to have to be addressed. Now, people's houses will have to be rebuilt. But that's happened in the past. The houses that have been rebuilt. The real question of the future there is the fact that the Janin Brigade, this group of young armed men, aren't going away there. Their commanders are still are still alive. They've been out and about in the refugee camp after the Israelis left early on Wednesday morning. They're still there, and, and there will be more battles in the future. Next up on The Bunker Global... France experienced several days of violent protests following the shooting of a teenager during a traffic stop. This visceral unrest appears to be calming, but the fallout is far from over. Laura, as best as we know, what happened here in France? Well, this is all about what appears to have been an interaction between a police officer and a teenager who was driving a vehicle in France. Now, it looks like from video that's been released of this interaction that this teenager was shot by this police officer. And plenty of people questioning why that happened, what threat this teenager actually posed to that officer and why the decision was taken for that officer to shoot him. Now, since that video was released, there's been incredible amount of uproar uh, across the whole of France. And there's been rioting, there's been looting, violence, and essentially a backlash against what many people have said is systemic uh, classicism or or racism within the police force. Now, it's very difficult to ascertain exactly what's happening. We've got to stress that a 38-year-old police officer is currently under investigation. So there's plenty of people looking at what happened, I suppose, around this interaction. And I'm certain that there'll be more that will come out of it. But at the moment, the immediate backlash has been pretty intense in terms of the violence, the looting, as I said, and just the general feeling of unrest across the country. How widespread is that backlash? You know, sort of we focus on capital cities like Paris, but it's gone much further than that, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. There's been cities across France that have been experiencing this kind of uh, aggression and upset. I think that's probably the word to use. And it's all about the relationship that people have with the police in France. Now, there's been public transport systems set alight. There's been symbols of the state as well that have also been attacked, schools even. uh, And a mayor's property, his own home, was also attacked as well. People are really questioning how the state interacts with the public and who indeed they can trust in all of this. In regards to what we can trust, how hard has misinformation online made it to get a clear picture of what is happening there? Well, it's very tricky, isn't it? Because we know that a lot of social media platforms are all about your opinion a lot of the time and pushing out what your view of a situation is. And so there's been a lot of videos, of course, and shots of people carrying out this kind of looting and aggression and violence passing around online. And it's also been uh, accused essentially by the French government as being a source of riling people up and trying to push people towards more rioting and more violence on the streets. And it's led the French president, Emmanuel Macron, to suggest that perhaps there should be some kind of 
censorship, if you like, a sort of curfew system on the social media uh, platforms to try to reduce the amount of this information that can be passed around. Now, understandably, there's been a backlash to that as well. People questioning why the government would want to do that and comparing it indeed to like other dictatorships like Iran uh, and North Korea. So it's a really tricky situation for the French government to try to get under control, but also for people as well who want their feelings and their upset to be heard. Yeah, I saw, for example, there was a video from the Fast and Furious 8 being passed off as people throwing cars off of a building in the unrest. So it's quite extreme, the sort of examples of videos which simply were not from the riots there. Yeah, exactly. And as any kind of consumer of social media, it's really tricky to try to verify where these comments, these videos, these images have really come from. We struggle within the news sphere to try to make sure that everything that we're purporting on you know, broadcast television or radio is absolutely yeah. accurate. And there aren't necessarily all of those checks that are taking place online. And this is a big challenge for the social media giants as well, to try to make sure that what is happening within their platforms is right, is accurate, is fair. But as you said, for people too, to try to work out exactly where these images have come from and if it is indeed uh, linked to the situation on the ground at all. You mentioned Macron's reaction to some of this there. What does this all, more widely for, for France, for the public and politically, what does this all mean? Well, there's a lot of questions about whether this actually might push people more towards the right-leaning national rally because... While, of course, we're seeing this unrest and people questioning the sort of state interaction, the police interaction, whether there is this issue with racism and sort of the class system with France, there's a lot of people that are looking towards the right of the political sphere within that nation. And they're putting out kind of messaging saying that they would crack down on this a bit more, try to stop people with this extreme violence, try to prevent it, which those that might be in the country and are scared of what's happening right now may actually be in favour of. And so there's a big question about whether this could have a wider impact on the way that people vote and their sort of perceptions of the world in France right now and which parties they align with, which of course is going to be a challenge for Emmanuel Macron because there was a lot of questions in the last election there for him as to whether or not he would be successful in gaining another term. He did, of course, but of... Uh, if we, you looked at the voting, there was an increase in, in voting for the national uh, rally. So there could be some knock-on implications for this further down the line. I think what President Macron is going to be trying to do now and other ministers within government is try to get a handle on the situation, push forward with this investigation into this police officer, establish exactly what happened when that shooting took place, when that 17-year-old died, and try to push that out to the public immediately and indeed respond to whatever the outcome of that investigation is in the correct way and in a way that's going to try to resonate with the public in a positive way. Do you think we can expect to see more violence? It depends how this investigation is actually dealt with, I think, and also how those other state institutions react to it and move forward. It feels like it is a bit of a tinderbox at the minute. If there is anything else that is going to cause unrest, maybe that would be really, really inflammatory and we could see even more rioting. But we know, of course, that the French system and, and the availability of that space for people to protest against what they do not agree with is really large. I don't know whether it will be wanted, well, it definitely won't be wanted by the French government, but it's just how they deal with this now, how they try to quell that anger and that unrest that's going to be really vital in terms of how the next few weeks and months play out.
For our next story, let's turn our attention to Hong Kong. In order to suppress political dissent overseas, the government in Hong Kong has issued arrest warrants for eight exiled pro-democracy protesters and placed bounties of around £100,000 for information leading to their arrests. Laura, what is going on here and why is Hong Kong particularly pursuing these people now? This is all essentially the fallout from the national security law that was passed in 2019. It was an attempt by China, Beijing, and then fundamentally Hong Kong to try to crack down on what has been seen by people in the Western world as freedom of democracy, freedom of speech. We know that there's become a bit of a more authoritarian view on how Hong Kong should be run, its government and everything that surrounds that. And so consequently, there's been these bans placed on people pushing what the Chinese government will say is a sort of a line surrounding dissent and uh, going against the government, but actually that those that are on the ground there and involved in government will say is actually a democratic way of life. Now, in terms of these eight people that have had these bounties essentially placed on their head, these are people that are living overseas at the moment. It's a message essentially to them to say that the Chinese government is watching them. I would say, and that they do not agree with how they are pushing forward and their messages that they're putting out in their own uh, worlds, that they don't agree with the way that the Chinese government is handling things. Now, this isn't a new thing. We've seen kind of arrest warrants on people before. I've spoken to people in London that have had these so-called arrest warrants placed on their own heads. And they say that it's absolutely ruined their lives. They've had to leave Hong Kong, run away from this situation in order to try to ensure their safety, come to the UK on that visa system that was opened up by the UK government, allowing Hong Kong nationals to come to the UK if they so wanted to. But they still say that they are being watched here in the UK, that they never feel completely safe. Yeah. And they will now find it difficult ever to go home because if they try to go there, then it could be that the Chinese government tries to arrest them, puts them into prison, and will they even get a fair trial? It's a really difficult uh, scenario to be in. And these people have essentially had to give up their friends and family in order to try to stick to their view that democracy is key. What does it mean practically for the people who have already fled? Is there any any likelihood of Hong Kong being able to actually get hold of these people? Or is it more, as you say, it's it's the messaging, it's the threat, it's, it's ruining these people's lives, but they are perhaps not actually likely to be caught by Hong Kong, as it were? Well, they can't be arrested on UK soil, for instance, or in the other nations that a lot of them are in, the US and Australia. But as I said, the difficulty will be if they're in transit to other countries where maybe there isn't that sense of yeah. protection from those governments and they might be therefore opened up to, to that risk of being arrested by the Hong Kong government. But here in the UK, the Foreign Secretary, James Cleverley, has made it really clear that he does not want to tolerate, he says, these attempts to silence individuals in the UK and overseas. What next for this story? What does this mean for, for Chinese influence, the influence of Beijing on Hong Kong itself? And can we expect to see this sort of thing ramping up in the near future? Well, it's definitely been a progression, hasn't it, from that 2019 national security bill when that was put forward. We've seen these increasing sort of threats to people that are living overseas that have dissented, as China says. But ultimately, they aren't criminals, those people. They're not going to be considered criminals in the nations that they're in. So 
in terms of how they move forward there, it's not really clear. But Beijing, despite being really important internationally in terms of trade and global sort of conversation, are being repeatedly criticised by Western nations for the way that they are behaving. And as you said, this link with Hong Kong becomes or appears to be becoming increasingly oppressive. And so then there's a question for those that are in Hong Kong as to how they can live their lives. Are they indeed being able to express their own personal opinions, live freely, protest against things that they don't agree with? It doesn't appear like that's much of an option now. And so while it has always been that sort of separate state, if you like, if I can phrase it like that, from China, it is becoming increasingly linked. And that's throwing up a lot of questions for those that are living there. Finally, Laura, let's look at something slightly closer to home. You are in Jersey as we speak. Uh, It looks like the UK government is going to introduce new rules that will see people looking to visit the UK and Crown dependencies needing to apply for a visa-style permit. And it's causing a bit of a stir in the Channel Islands, isn't it, specifically among French visitors? Yeah, absolutely. So this is quite an interesting story and it's gone under the radar a little bit, I think. It's all to do with these new visa style or applications that the government wants to bring in from the end of 2024. They're going to start with some nations uh, towards the end of this year, then add more to this list uh, in 2024 before basically the majority of countries. They're called ETAs, Electronic Travel Authorizations. And it's a piece of paperwork that will have to be associated with your passport when you travel. Now, the issue here in the Channel Islands, where I am at the moment, is that the Jersey government, to try to overcome sort of issues post-Brexit, had introduced an ID card system where French people could come to Jersey which is just a few miles away from the coast of France, essentially, for the day using just their ID card, their national ID card. They didn't need a passport. Now, if this visa system, this new visa system is brought in, then that does away with that system that the Jersey government said had been applauded by the UK government, the home office there, that actually they said it was working really well. It was bringing a boost to tourism and trade and everything else. That's going to be scrapped if this comes in and if an agreement can't be reached. And so it's causing issues for people here concerned about tourism, about business, but also for those French visitors that might want to pop over for a day trip. What is the justification for it being changed? It seems like it's a post-Brexit situation where the UK government is having to put in place different uh, systems to ensure that they can monitor who's coming in and out of the UK. There's a lot of questions that need to be asked from the Home Office. And I know that the Jersey government are going to be looking to talk to the Home Office, to talk to the UK government to try to find a way around this because they are really concerned for how this could impact their business, particularly post-COVID when we had all those travel restrictions there. People are only just starting to get back onto their feet. So any further blocks to that could be a real issue for them. Laura, thank you so much for joining me today. You're more than welcome. And that is the end of The Bunk Global. Listeners, if you enjoyed the show, come back next week for another edition. There's also a new episode of The Bunker every day. And remember, you can back us on Patreon if you enjoy them. For £3 a month, you'll get episodes early and ad-free. I'm Jacob Jarvis. Thank you for joining me in The Bunker. The Bunker Global was written and presented by Jacob Jarvis. The producer was Liam Tate, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison, with music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.